Hey everyone, welcome back to the King Kumar podcast. My name is Isaac Kumar, and I am currently a student at North Central College studying marketing. Today's podcast is going to be a story. It's not going to be an interview like many of you guys are used to. I'm really excited to tell this story because it's something I'm really passionate about. And it's also something that really made me start a podcast, telling a story. Today's story will be a little bit different. Something very similar to why the AAF failed. But we're going to kick it back, back in time, and talk about another sports league that tried to compete with the NFL. And by doing so, eventually cost them to fail. We're going to talk about how one man, one man's actions, one man's actions to go above and beyond to own a NFL team, even if it meant he may have broke the duty of loyalty under partnership law. I'm really excited to tell you guys this story. So step back, relax, and let's tell the story about why the USFL fail. So, like me, if you guys like football, you probably know that the NFL is a goliath in the world of football. There was once a time though, when a football league tried to compete with the likes of the NFL. So what was this league? This league was none other than the USFL. On August 7th, 1961, David Dixon, an antiques dealer, had a deep desire for his hometown city, New Orleans, to have a football team. And on that same day, he got some heartbreaking news. The NFL had denied his request to have a professional football team in New Orleans. David Dixon's dream of having his own hometown football league was shattered. You see, Dixon knew how a football team would change a city. Just look at how it changes the city and where it is today. Look at how it changed the city of Chicago and made it into a football city. Football can change a city and that's what Dixon wanted and he loved football. So did Dixon give up on his dream? No. Because if you're an entrepreneur, you'll never give up on having your idea fulfilled. You'll keep going and find unique ways to get that fulfilled. Dixon came up with a unique idea, though. He said, why not have football being played in the springtime? After all, the first football game between the Rutgers and Princeton was played during a spring. But eventually... Football would not be a spring sport. It would it would move to the fall when when college decided to change that. So after a two-year gap, Dixon decided to take action on his dream. And in the spring of 1963, he met with Pat Brown, the founder and coach of the Cleveland Browns, to discuss his novel idea and talk to the football genius about something he called the USFL. Now, the USFL would be a little bit different from the NFL because they would hire big name coaches. They would manage crowds. They would keep salaries in check and have a cap space. And they would also have regional draft, meaning NFL teams would drop kids from the local colleges. So basically, that would mean like the Chicago Bears drafting players from like UIC, the University of Illinois in Urbana-Champaign or Northwestern, or kids from North Central College. That's basically what a regional draft is. And, oh yeah, the one thing, the unique value proposition of his league, is that every play during the springtime, fans would have a whole year of football. Dixon, who got inspired by his idea getting validated by Pat Brown, was able to get A-listers to buy into his idea. He got the founder of Holiday Inn, the CEO of General Tires and Rubber, and the CEO of 
Anheuser and Bush and a big time oil tycoon to invest into his idea. And then on June 5th, 1996, a paper that read New Football League announced was seen by the NFL. The NFL was like, oh, hey, what is this? They didn't think of much of it at the time. They're like, hmm, we got some competition. So they did what any other big name company would do. They announced that, hey, you know what? Why don't we expand to New Orleans? The dream that Dixon had got accomplished. The NFL, the NFL wins, right? I mean, they could just squash your competitors. Dixon wins too. He gets his own football team. And, you know, everyone wins, right? I mean, even the investors, it's, it's probably too... They didn't invest that much. They invested a little bit. They can still take out their money. And that's exactly what they did. Dixon had his own NFL team. Um, everyone was happy, except for maybe those investors were losing their money. So that's it, right? Story ended. That's how the USFL failed, right? Nah. Nah, that's not at all how the USFL failed. So, what exactly happened? Why this? Why was there a change? Well, we have to keep on going with the story. So, the NFL, in the meantime, it grew from 14 teams to 28 teams. And the rights to buy an NFL team were at $10 million. Everything is good, right? Dixon's happy. Everyone's happy, right? Eh, not really. Because in 1979, Dixon sets down to watch his Saints play. And they aren't good. Their offensive line can't protect their, their QB, Arch Manning. They are really, really bad offensively. And if you're a Bears fan, does this sound familiar to you? Same issues as the 2020 Chicago Bears. Man, it sucks watching those Bears play week after week. Imagine what he had to go through. You understand his pain? He has to watch this every single Sunday. And year after year, the Bear hit his team were average, they were winning like seven games a year. And then in, in 1979, he notices just how dull the NFL is. The games aren't close, the offenses are pretty basic, kind of like the Chicago Bears, and it frustrates him. So one day, he opens up the newspaper, remember there's no internet at this time, and he goes to the sports section, and he sees something said that said, Brand New Sports Network Announced based in Bristol, Connecticut, a sports network that delivered sports content 24-7. This network was none other than ESPN. And I think to himself, well, you know, one of the reasons that he pulled out of the USFL was because the USFL really struggled to broadcast their games. So he thought, why not bring my idea back? And you know what? I can contact ESPN and they can host my games. So, in 1980, he hired a marketing agency going to agency lock a law that we talked about in Business Law to see the feasibility of whether or not a su spring summer professional league could work. The results were pretty positive. And Dixon said, you know what? This can work. So he proceeded to the next step. In 1981, with the help of a marketing agency, he puts out the survey. And again, that showed that, hey, this can actually work. He presented the results of this survey to new investors because, you know, those old investors are gone. And he was able to get a lot of great investors. And I'll talk about the investors in a little bit. On May 11th, 1982, at the famous 21 Club in NYC, he announces a rebirth of the USFL. And at first, people are like, are skeptical of the USFL. They're like, why compete with the NFL? They are so big. So, one of the owners, a Michigan circuit judge named Peter Spivak, talks about how he thinks the USFL will be a lot different from the NFL. He touches on how there will be 12 teams. He touches on one of the original ideas, like I mentioned, the regional standouts. They brought that idea back. He also talks about how the season will start in March and end in mid-July. We're basically being 
more football for fans. And each team will also have a cap space of $1.5 million to sign players under contracts. And he said that also every team could, could sign marquee college star players. And Peter Spivak would also act as, act as a, the acting NFL commissioner before they found a real commissioner. So I mentioned before that Dixon got new investors. How did he do that? Well, here did something pretty smart. He went down the 400 richest people in Forbes and he was able to get a combined capital of $100 million for the next two years. The NFL looks at the USFL and they're like, <laughs> what a joke. They are, they just think that this is a joke and the USFL will fail. But boy, would things change. In 1983, Dixon reached a contract with ABC and ESPN for $60 million for 1984 and 1985. And in accordance with the contract made with ESPN, Chet Simmons was hired as a new commissioner of the USFL. On March 6, 1963, the USFL was born. And like I mentioned before, it consisted of 12 teams and of three divisions. The Atlantic Division, which consisted of the Boston Breakers, the New Jersey Generals, Philadelphia Stars, Washington Federals, the Central Division, which consisted of the Birmingham Stallions, the Chicago Blitz, Michigan Panthers and the Tampa Bay Bandits and the Pacific Division which consisted of the Arizona Wranglers, Denver Gold, Los Angeles Express, and the Oakland Invaders. The playoff structure is kind of similar to what the NFL has, so it has the three divisional winners and one wild card. Now, the USFL was also able to get some big time college players to, to sign with them. They were able to get stars like Herschel Walker, a megastar running back, and Pete Wazell and his lead counsel, Patrick Lynch, were angered. This was huge for the USFL. They just had the regional draft, and they had some, some top players, but most of them were marginal prospects, and some weren't non-prospects at all. The NFL was angered about how they could get such a star player in Herschel Walker. They were angry. And to recruit Walker, they gave him a cashier's check worth $1 million when he could, he could turn, he could, you know, give to the bank at any time he wishes. Now, because of NCA contract laws, NCA players aren't allowed to get paid. So by having this, the USFL was kind of avoid, avoided kind of that rule by the NCCA. Some other notable players were like Craig James, who went to the Washington Federals. And Herschel Walker signed a deal with the New Jersey Generals. Now, when the USFL started, just like any startup, there were some issues. And the USFL also had them. Most of the issues were like around weather. Because of the fact the USFL was so new, they couldn't afford to cancel games. And one of these games was like the Arizona Wranglers versus the Birmingham Stallions. That game had monsoons, freezing rains. It was bad. And the 1,500 fans that went there got rained on. It was a bad look for the, for the USFL. The players got a hold, the press got a hold of it and ratings fell. It was not good at all for the USFL. Players were mad. The press was mad. The fans were mad. Everyone was mad. So what happens next? Things go even more south when Albert Tubman, the owner of the Michigan Panthers, sees ticket sales running well and he's like, you know what, I gotta fix my team. So what he does is he kind of bends the contract he had with the USFL on which he would have a cap space of $1.5 million and he puts his own melee, he puts in $2.4 million to sign three former Pittsburgh Steelers to play on this offensive line. The other owners are like jealous, they're angry that they can sign big players. But but he can. 
But for Tubman, it pays off. His team is in the championship game. He's winning. And while this is going on, Chet Simmons, who's in the press box of this game, adds an even more fuel to the fire when he says to the media how the NFL can only dream of having a championship like this. He talks about how how the NFL, how, the, how great this game is for the USFL. But then tragedy strikes. And this is kind of touching on criminal law. A group of drunk individuals get onto the field and they cause chaos. They cause a goalpost to shake. Police officers in an attempt to calm down the situation mace fans. Some fans are arrested and one fan is even taken out in a stretcher. It is very, very, very bad. And that is how the first season for the USFL ended. Not good at all. Really, really bad, in fact. I mean, they did have some good stuff, you know? They got some ups and downs. They were able to have 12 teams in operations. They were to get 2.7 million fans to come out and witness spring and summer football. Each game had about like 25k fans. And the team that had the most fans were the Denver Gold, who had about 40,000 fans per home game. But there were also some notable issues, like the fact that ratings were down. And the New Jersey Generals, despite having a star in Herschel Walker, went 6 and 12. The Boston Brewers, Breakers, had one of the worst fan turnouts in the league. And mixed out with the negative storylines, like of how fans got rained on and how there were drunk fans that got onto the field, it was a up and down. It was a roller coaster for USFL. The only team that had a profit was the Denver Gold. The rest of the USFL teams had losses, and these losses were anywhere between $1 million to $6 million. And these owners, who are pretty rich, aren't used to having losses. So they thought of a plan. They thought, hey, why not expand from 12 teams to 18 teams? And this isn't very smart. You don't expand when you're having a crisis going on. You figure out how you can you, you kind of keep costs down and you find out a way to make money instead of expanding. But then, J. Walter Duncan, the owner of the New Jersey General, says, you know what, I'm done. And he decides to end his partnership with the USFL and sells his team to the New Jersey, his sales team, the New Jersey Generals, for $10 million to someone named Donald Trump. And for the USFL, this is really good. Since their contract with ABC states that there needs to be a team in or near around the Big Apple. And Donald Trump, who is from NYC, would keep them there. He, in fact, kind of wanted them to move to New York. Even more positive news comes for the USFL. They were able to sign Jim Kelly from... They were able to get Jim Kelly from entering the NFL and... They were able to get him for, to play for their team, for in their league, and they were also they were they signed him to a one million dollars upfront and one point five million dollars for the next five seasons. That's a pretty good contract. They were able to get Steve Young to sign a forty-two million dollar deal, and Donald Trump even tried to get the legendary Don Shula to come coach in the NFL, but he failed. But then, something else happens. Something that under the legal duty of partners isn't correct. Trump, kind of, but not really, kind of breaks the duty of loyalty when he calls San Antonio's owner, Clinton Mangus. He talks about how, you know, NFL is nice, but it's like small potatoes. And he says, you know, with the Jets moving to New Jersey, why can't the generals represent the Big Apple? Essentially, Donald Trump wants the New Jersey Generals to become an NFL team. Because he knows NFL teams are worth $70 million compared with that of the, of the USFL teams, which are only worth $6 million. And he knows to do this, he has to find a way to where the USFL and the NFL merge together. He also knows that when this happens, his team needs to be competitive. 
or they won't be really good in the NFL. They'll be like the Browns, or like how the Bears are, or they'll just be the Jets. <laughs> so, he comes up with an idea to march the three teams together. He comes up with the idea that the USFL should move to the fall as soon as possible. Now, to do this, he calls the New York Times and says how the USFL will also be competing with the NFL. They will go head-to-head in a boxing match with the NFL. And the other owners, they don't want this. They just want the USFL to not fight with the NFL. They just want to be their own league. They don't want anything to do with the NFL. They don't want to cause any, any troubles. But at the next ownership meeting, Donald Trump proposes a contract where if the USFL moves to the fall, he will bring in the big networks and for a lot more money for the USFL than what they had now. But again, the owner, the, the commissioner of the USFL, Chet Simmons, insists that the USFL will not compete with the NFL. John Bassett of the Tampa Bay Bandits is pissed, is angry, is fuming that Donald Trump a brand brand new to the USFL can make such an insensitive comment. And he says, no, the USFL should not move to the fall. And he writes him a letter in which he praises Trump at first, but then he said he has no regrets punching Trump to make such a comment like the one he made. He reminds him, make sure your comments don't shoot the messenger. During the USFL's second season, they play much better. They improve. They have guys like Herschel Walker, Jim Kelly, Steve Young, all kill it. Off the field, they have something really cool where a fan can create some plays and like the team can run them. Maybe the Bears should do that based on Matt Nagy's play calling. Maybe that could help our offense. And basically that fan could have his or her, her play out, her play play out. They had other cool things too, like fan interactions, like where the, and, Fans could be really involved with the USFL and the like, halftime games and stuff. But during this time, Donald Trump still wants to be in the NFL. At the next ownership meeting, he talks about how he wants to be an NFL owner so badly. Again, this is like breaking the duty of loyalty that he has with the other with his other partners with the USFL. He keeps on pushing and pushing for the USFL to move to the fall. And something really creative that he does is he kind of makes like a counterpart himself to which he calls Baron. He tells the media how the USFL really wants to move to the fall, which is a lie. He contacts media networks on the possibility of televising USFL games. And this is really, really, really important. So make sure you're listening. And networks say, hey, this won't be feasible. They know how big the NFL is and they know that Hosting the USFL isn't really a good idea. It's not going to bring in the ratings. It's not going to bring in the eyes. And they don't want it. But NFL owners, I mean USFL owners, finally decide to, di- to dig in. They decide, hey, maybe this could work. So they contact this this management firm. And they, they run a study called the McKenzie study. And... During this McKenzie study, they kind of see like how, like, would this work? Would us moving to the fall work at all? But the McKenzie study shows them that this is not really smart. That being in a spring is really, really smart. But one of the things that, that, that the management firm found out was the media news that the USFL was going to move to the fall isn't a good book for the USFL. It's taking away that credibility that USFL has. USFL owners are like, okay, you know what? Let's just stay in the spring. Everyone agrees. Everyone except Donald Trump, who says if the USFL stays in the in the springtime, he will leave. And how moving to fall is good. Now the networks love it too. He also brings up the point of how the USFL is losing so much money and how by moving to the fall time this would solve a lot of the issues. Now, this is really important, so make sure you guys are listening. 
Music organizations are usually the focus of attention and controversy under antitrust law. Pete Rozell, who's, who's, who's NFL commissioner, knows that if the USFL moves to the fall, they will sue the NFL and claim they are monopolizing the TV rights on fall football and that they are violating the Sherman Act of 1890. The Sherman Act of 1890 basically states that the Federal Trade Associate aims to preserve free trade and undefined, undeferred competition as a rule of trade. Usually the courts, the courts will decide on whether com- or companies are, company organizations are monopolies or not based on the facts of the case. The goal of antitrust laws is simple. It's just to provide strong incentives for businesses to operate efficiently, keep prices down, and keep the quality up. Now, the Sherman Act doesn't really prohibit every restriction of trade, just the ones that are that, that are unreasonable. Now, most punishments are civil, but there can be criminal vi- criminal acts and criminal violations too and anything of that sort will be prosecuted by the Department of Justice. The Federal Trade Commission also, quote, bans, quote, unfair methods of competition, end quote, and, quote, unfair or deceptive acts or practices, end quote. And using the Disarmament Act of 1890, the courts find the NFL does indeed violate the Sherman Act of 1890, and all all these damages will be tripled in court. And just and just like Pete Rozelle predicted on October 29th, 1984, Bill McSheary, the USFL's general counsel, had a 39-page lawsuit on which they claimed the NFL practices a monopoly and how because of this they have exclusive rights to ABC, NBC, and CBS, and saying because of these rights, it's really hard for the USFL or any rival league to exist since they don't have those TV rights and don't have access to the networks and the fans who watch those networks. The USFL seeks damages up to $440 million, and because of the Sherman Act of 1890 and also the Clayton Act of 1914, which basically states that anti- which basically it, it basically says that, hey, because of these acts, of these antitrust acts, it could result in in anti like competitive in an anti competitive environment. So, because of these two acts, the the, the resulting damages will result in one point three nine billion dollars in damages. Jet Simmons, again, the commissioner for the USFL, knows this is really unlikely to happen, but he holds a media press conference anyway, and he says that, you know, the NFL is a bully, and all the USFL just wants is to be treated freely. And in Donald Trump's own press conference with Ray Cohn, he claims that the NFL is totally a monopoly, and how the USFL will win this case. Ray Cohn, who is a lawyer, also echoes that and claims how the stadiums had leases and how the channels don't want to air the USFL games, which is what the fans want. Instead of acting as a co-counsel, Donald Trump wants Cohen to lead the case. And keep in mind, the other owners did not communicate with Donald Trump at all. They didn't want Cohen to try their case. They had other ideas. And in a media conference with Cohen and, and Cohen and Trump, Trump, they claim that they have substantial evidence on how the NFL is a monopoly. And, you know, with these moves, all the owners and Chet Simmons now know that, hey, the league does not belong to us. It belongs to Donald Trump. They know Donald Trump is now the new owner of the USFL and he is in control. And at one of the latest meetings, ownership meetings, Chet Simmons announced he's going to resign as the USFL's commissioner. He also announces that the USFL will play their 85 season in the spring, and then they will carry the looming lawsuit down 
and then they will play their 86th season in the fall. So what is the USFL's argument against the NFL? They basically say it's how the NFL basically pressured TV networks to not televise USFL games and how the NFL wants to... During the second season of the USFL, things get better, just like any startup should. A startup should aim to get better. A startup should aim to be to overcome failures and improve. The USFL first plays much better football, having legendary guys like Herschel Walker, Jim Kelly, and Steve Young kill it in their league. Off the field, they have a sort of thing which I think is a really good idea from my bears, where a certain fan can create a play and the team will run it, his or her play, based on how creative that is and how that can implement into uh, their offense. I mean, if the bears tournament to do this, kind of means that we would see one less play of runs with Cordell Patterson and screens. Anyway, back to the story, Lucifer also had other cool fan interactions where fans could like get onto the field, get into like halftime games and stuff. It was awesome. They really cared about the fan interaction. But in the meantime, Donald Trump still pushes for his dream to get into NFL. At the next ownership meeting, he tells the USFL blankly he wants to be an NFL owner so badly. And he keeps pushing the USFL to move to the fall. And again, this is kind of like rifting against the duty of royalty. One creative thing that he does is he makes like a counterpart himself, which he calls Baron. He tells the media like how the USFL really wants to move to the fall, which is a lie, which the USFL did not want to do. He then contacts the media networks on the possibility of televising USFL games in the fall. The networks are like, no, the NFL is really big. Fans don't want to see the USFL play in the fall. Again, you know, is it, you know, again, this is another like he he basically says that hey, he basically lies to the to the media when he comes out and says hey, US, he says hey, um, networks want to see us, but that's a lie. Now the owners are like, you know what? Maybe Trump is right. Maybe we're wrong. So they contact a management firm, an agency, under agency law, they can do this about the possibility of moving to the fall. They call, they make a study called the McKenzie study. Now, the McKenzie study basically looked at whether or not moving to the fall would be smart. And they say, no, not moving to the fall is not smart. Being in the spring is smart. That's what the US should do, stay in the spring. You also say how the media news and how Lucifer wants to move to the fall is not good. How that ruins the reputation of, you know, USFL. And basically, basically, you know, Donald Trump is mad. He's like, you know what, guys? Um, if you guys don't move to the fall, I'm going to leave. I, I don't want to be a part of the lead. And he talks about how, again, the networks love it, which is a lie. Networks basically said, hey, we don't want to televise the USFL games in the fall. Now, what they do do is they let the people decide. Let the owners decide. They decide to take a vote on what the owners want. And most of the owners are like, yeah, I think we should, we should move actually to the fall. And Donald Trump went. His arguments that he basically posed which were um, the USFL's losing money, um, how fans want it, how the networks want it. He convinces them to move to the fall. Now, something I want you guys to understand is that this relates to law. So league organizations tend to be, tend to have a lot of focus and a lot of scrutiny and attention based on antitrust law. And Pete Rosal, because of this, he knows if the USFL moves to the fall, they will surely sue the NFL and claim that they are monopolizing their rights on fall television rights. And that, you know, 
the USFL will claim that the NFL was violating the Sherman Act of 1890. So what is the Sherman Act of 1890? Well, according to the Federal Trade Association, the Sherman Act of 1890 basically just wants to preserve free trade and undeferred competition. Usually, the courts decide whether or not um, companies are violating Sherman Act based on the facts of each case. Now, the goal of antitrust laws are to make sure there are strong incentives for businesses to operate efficiently, keep prices down, and keep the quality up. Now, the Sherman Act does not pro- prohibit every restriction of trade, just those that are unre- unreasonable. Now, most most violations of this act are civil, but some can also be criminal, and any businesses or individual pros- will be prosecuted by the Department of Justice. Now, the, the Federal Trade Commission Act that basically says, quote, unfair methods of competition, they ban unfair methods of competition, and quote, unfair or deceptive acts or practices, end quote. Under the Sherman Act of 19. 19- 1890, if courts didn't indeed find like the NFL that they did violate the Sherman Act of 1890, then all the damages will be tripled in court. And just as Pete Rozelle, the NFL's commissioner, predicted, Bill McSherry, the USFL's general counsel, basically had gave a 39-page lawsuit against NFL, on which they claim the NFL practices monopoly by having exclusive rights with ABC, NBC, and CBS. It basically states that NFL is monopolizing those TV rights and it's hard for them to exist. They seek damages up to $440 million. Because of the Sherman Act in 1890, another act of of the Clayton Act of 1890, which basically says that, hey, some some practices, some practices by the NFL, like of like of them having those rights to to ABC, NBC, and CBS, could result in an anti-competitive nation where the NFL is king. Now, again, like I stated, this four hundred forty million dollars would result in one point three nine billion dollars because of the Sherman Act of eighteen ninety the Clayton Act of 1914, which basically triples the amount in damages. Now, Chuck Simmons, he knows they're unlikely to win, and this is unlikely to happen. He knows that the, the league is basically gone, but he holds a media conference anyway, in which he says how the NFL is, is a bully, and how all the USFL wants to be treated is fairly. And then, in Trump's own press conference, and basically, you know, Bill McSherry's woken up by his wife, who's watching this on TV. He has like this press conference with Ray Cohen, who is a famous lawyer back in the day, on which he claims that the NFL is a totally a monopoly on how the USFL will easily win this case. And Cohen, a lawyer, echo he claim he he also echoes this and he says like how stadiums have leases and how not really just go towards the USFL and how channels don't really want to air USFL games. And instead of making Cohen a co-counsel, Trump says, hey, Cohen is going to lead it. And the USFL owners are like, what? No, we don't want this. Trump, again, he does not ask any of the owners if they want Cohen to lead the case. Again, breaking the duty of loyalty. And, you know, NFL owners are pissed and they're angry. Why wouldn't they be? Now, during a press conference with Trump and Cohen, they announced that they have substantial evidence against the NFL that prove the NFL is indeed a monopoly. But this move, the move with Trump suing the NFL, the move with Trump bringing on a guy like Cohen, the NFL owners and Chet Simmons know the USFL no longer belongs to them. 
It belongs to Donald Trump. At the ownership meetings, with the media too, Judge Simmons announces he's done with the USFL. And he's out. Biosafel comes out and says the 8-5 season will be played in the spring. They will have a looming lawsuit on, and they still have plans to play the 86 season in the fall, assuming they win this case. Now, in court, when you're in court, you need an argument. The USFL's argument is that the NFL pressured TV networks to not televise USFL in the fall, and that the NFL wants to destroy its league. But... After the 85 season, while this whole lawsuit is going on, some big changes and some big issues happen for the USFL. Now, since there's a big hiatus from summer of 85 to fall of 86, some teams just close down shop. They know they cannot win in the NFL if it gets merged. They just close down operations. Some teams merge. Some teams even get traded for other teams. And during the hiatus, Many star players are let go of their contracts. Herschel Walker signs a deal with the Dallas Cowboys. Jim Kelly signs a deal with the Buffalo Bills. Legendary Steve Young signs a deal with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Maybe that's what presumed Tom Bay to come to the Bucs because of that, how Steve Young played for them. I don't know. Anyway, back to our story. But then, Cohen is, is diagnosed with HIV. Now, Trump decides to fire him, and he hires Harvey Meyerson. The thing was, Trump didn't tell any of the owners and get anyone's input before hiring Harvey Meyerson. Thus, this breaks a duty of loyalty once again. You see, the other owners did not like Meyerson at all. Jerry Argovitz, a player, a player's a agent for the players, suggested to Trump that the trial should be heard anywhere but New York, and that the attorney should be someone likable, someone that the jury would like, someone that the jury would fall for. This is all dealing with trial signs. He suggested that the trial be heard in Houston. Now, the science behind that is that in Houston, the USFL had a big market and a big amount of fans who loved the USFL. It was one of their biggest markets. He suggested that the USFL should should hire Joe Jamo, one of the best antitrust lawyers for the case. But Trump decided that your trial will be heard in New York City. He suggested that this was the best case scenario for the USFL to win that case. Now, even though the USFL knew Meyerson was a controversial lawyer, they were afraid because they did pressure TV networks to kind of ignore the league and deny, you know, their request to host their games on television networks. They even commissioned a paper called Spending the USFL Dollars, in which they devised a plan to drive up USFL salaries, their costs. They devised a 46-page report made by the NF- for the NFL by a professor named Michael Porter, a business professor, in which he came up with some ideas to crush the USFL. Some of the highlights were A. The NFL would actively encourage the undesirable players to come to the USFL. USFL. Secondly, the NFL would actively influence problem players and overvalued players to jump leagues. Next, they would help encourage a strong unionization of the USFL. Then, they would sign away the USFL's biggest stars. They would move up the draft earlier to compete with the USFL's draft. They would drive up players' costs and fringe benefits and have unfiltered bargaining power. And they would attempt to co-opt the most powerful and influential owners to come join the NFL. They would attempt to bankrupt the weakest teams in the NFL and reduce their size and credibility. And finally, they would punish ABC for by having a mediocre schedule of Monday night football games to punish the network for televising USFL games. Now, during a tr- trial signs, another thing that some parties do is they have a mock trial. Now, what the NFL did was they hired a legal 
creative services to produce a mock trial on what would happen in a trial with the NFL and the USFL. And the results weren't good at all for the NFL. The owners just said, hey, why not settle? Even the NFL's legal attorney, Robert Fiske, said the NFL should settle. But then Paul Tangeloff, the NFL's outside counsel, said, no, the USFL is a sham and that we can use Donald Trump to become our biggest asset. He also stated how if the USFL settled with the if the NFL, sorry, settled with the USFL, other rival leagues in the future would also want to do the same. Now, on October 12, 1986, the 11-week mentally draining trial begins. Now, the jury selections consisted of one man and five women. There were nine charges against the NFL, three violations of common law, six violations of the Sermon Antitrust Act. Musapel seek damages up to $1.69 billion plus punitive damages. Michael Jafusi said that if there's even if there's a victory for the USFL, the USFL would run a parallel course with the NFL for several years to come. Another thing that the USFL had issues where they saw that the NFL was trying to illegally poach players from their league. And they saw how Herschel Walker was produced was pursued by the Dallas Cowboys while he still had a contract with the USF with the New York Generals. There were dozens of these cases of NFL, the NFL trying to illegally poach USFL players. But the but Myerson's strategy was to make it about Trump versus the NFL instead of USFL versus Donald Trump. Now, the legendary Jim Kelly said that he was in a hotel waiting to have his name called and waiting to testify. His name was never called. Myerson neglected to get any of the owners, too, to come to testify. He only wanted Trump. The people who did testify to USFL were Al Davis, the legendary Raiders owner who actually spoke behind on the USFL. Howard Kosel the legendary announcer who showed up drunk to the testimony, Chet Simmons, the ex-NFL commissioner, and Harry Usher, the current USFL commissioner. Now, the testimony by Usher basically stated that the reason the USFL decided to move to the fall was because they wanted to merge with the NFL. This was, this was all a basically a hot fudge Sunday for the NFL's lawyer, Frank Rothman. Now, Rothman was the complete opposite from Myerson. He was patient, kind, respectful. He was a guy who the jury liked. He was a guy who the jury wanted to be in the courtroom. All Rothman had to do to win the case was be patient. Rothman's goal, Rothman's mission, was to make Donald Trump the fall guy, make Donald Trump his greatest asset. One of the first witnesses to come testify was Pete Rozelle. Again, he was the NFL's commissioner. Usher's goal was to make Rozelle admit that Trump wanted to be in NFL. He said, quote, Didn't you tell Mr. Trump that you wished he had been able to buy the Baltimore Colts and that you wished he didn't go into the USFL? End quote. Rozelle said, No. Indicating a meeting between, he basically indicated a meeting that Trump and Roselle had at the Pierre Hotel in 1984, which Trump wanted to have with Roselle. He wanted to talk to Roselle about him coming into the NFL. Myerson followed up with another question. He said, quote, Did you tell him if he hadn't given up to the US, if he hadn't gone to the USFL, the USFL would have died? End quote. Roselle replied, Quote, no, never, end quote. Trump, on the hand, was a complete opposite. He stated how Rizal did want an NFL, how he and Rizal were best friends, how he and Rizal were friends. He told Rizal, quote, you will have a good chance of having, Rizal told him, quote, you will have a good chance of having an NFL team. In fact, you will have an NFL franchise, end quote. Now, what was trade-off? So according to Trump, the trade-off was that 
the USFL would stay put in the springtime and there would be no lawsuit against the NFL and Trump would get his wish. Again, just that statement alone would break the duty of loyalty that Trump had with his partners. Lozell was shocked by Trump's comments and he said to Rothman, the NFL's lawyer, that quote, Trump said that he, he really wanted an NFL expansion team in New York. He then quoted Trump and said, quote, He said how Trump said to him, I would get some sniff to buy the New York Generals and any team in the USFL. End quote. The state, now again, this shows how far Donald Trump took to kind of break the duty of law just to get his wish. Now, to really prove this and to show this really happened, Roselle happened to be a note taker. He took detailed notes of what happened during their meeting, and he showed this to Rothman. And it was evidence, like, whatever Roselle, according to that, Roselle's words were correct. He stated that he did not want Donald Trump in the NFL. Now, you may, now, most of the media people and the news outlets saw that, hey, I don't think this is going really, really well for the U.S., for the NFL. And they thought it was over for the NFL, that the NFL would win. So they were shocked at 3.35 p.m. on July 29th, 1986, when Patrick Buse, the court clerk lawyer, announced that the NFL was indeed a monopoly on how every single NFL team, the 27 NF, 28 NFL teams, were all part of the NFL's monopoly. The USFL's members, owners, the members of them, the players, were all excited. They were pumped. They had did it. They had won. But then they heard the damages. Damages for the NFL was just $1, the, sni- the amount of a Snickers bar. And because of the antitrust damages, this was actually $3. Now, during the jury meetings that actually happened, the jury initially said, hey, the USFL should be entitled to $300 million, which would be $1 billion due to the antitrust damages. But they just couldn't agree on an amount, and they did not want a hung jury, so they decided to just give them one dollar. Now, in conclusion, basically, the USFL failed because kind of of Donald Trump and how he wanted to be in the NFL. And of the court case, too, that basically robbed them and how they decided to move to to the fall when they should have stayed in the springtime. They also had some financial issues too, which eventually cost them and kind of really cost the league to fail. I would be really curious to see what football would have been like if we could still have the USFL. It'd be a definitely a different thing, but you know, life happens and you can't always have what you want in life. I hope you guys enjoyed my podcast. I know I messed up a little bit, I hope you guys genuinely enjoyed the podcast. Thank you for listening.